China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Julian Gu, an Associate Professor of Transnational Governance at the University of Amsterdam, to discuss the political dynamics that shape China's economic system. Julian, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So we're here to discuss your fantastic new book, Communists Constructing Capitalism, State, Market, and the Party in China's Financial Reform. But before we dive into the book's contents, I first wanted to ask you a bit about your background and research interests. Specifically, I'm interested in how you came to this approach to China, which blends politics, economics, and increasingly technology. How how did this become of interest to you? I immediately started researching this aspect of China's development as we were emerging from the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So my general research interests have always been in the institutional and the ideological foundations of capitalism. And of course, the the 2008-09 crisis fundamentally kind of shook up a lot of our previous assumptions about financial capitalism, especially the Western model. And at that time, Chinese capitalism was seemingly the next, the newest aspect or or development in the global economy that really needed to be understood. At that time, with financial crisis roiling Western economies and the Chinese economy was seemingly steaming on ahead, it seemed like the most opportune time to to start to really do a deep dive into how Chinese capitalism operates and its foundations. So that's what led me to start to really try to understand how this system is put together. And as I was doing the research for the book, I spent two years doing fieldwork in Beijing. And I was really interested in trying to understand how this state versus market, you know, regulatory system was developing in China and how it could be compared to what was seemingly failures of the Western system. So during my time in Beijing, as I started to investigate this this, this question, it became increasingly apparent that there was something very much missing from how we understood Chinese capitalism. And the more conversations that I had with party officials, with financial executives, with various other players within the Chinese political and economic system, it became more apparent that there was something missing in how we were trying to understand Chinese capitalism, the role of the financial system and the guiding orientation of of the Chinese economy as a whole seems to not really be uh, very explicable from from our existing paradigms and perspectives. So, So this is what led me to get deeper and deeper into understanding how authority and power and control are, are constructed through various different institutional and ideological means. And in China, this came to revolve very much around the party. So that was what led me to to, to this direction in my research and, and to try and reveal, uncover what are the mechanisms of control that the party would use in order to bind together the state and the market in this otherwise very complex and hard to describe system of Chinese capitalism. Building on that, the book opens up with this famous quote from Deng Xiaoping, which says, whether a little more plan or or a little more market, this is not the fundamental difference between socialism and capitalism. The plan and the market are both economic tools. And it was striking that you use that quote at the beginning because that's typically used when we're reading about Deng's more pragmatic side and that this was a flexible guy who was willing to introduce more market. And in fact, he was trying to maybe push against conservatives by saying, look, let's not get into distinctions here between plan and market. But the way you used it in the book, it strikes me that there was something else you think 
Dung was saying there and something more profound. And so I wanted to know if you could unpack that quote in terms of what was Dung getting at here and, and more broadly, powerful argument you make is our traditional heuristic of thinking about this tension between state and market doesn't seem to map onto the Chinese experience if it maps on anywhere really. But I wanted to know if you could dive into that more. What is wrong with our thinking about plan versus market or state versus market in the Chinese context? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I guess the fundamental, if I can try and summarize this very briefly to simplify it a little grossly, the fundamental problem with the way in which we tend to think about state and the market as these primary institutions within political economy from a Western perspective is that indeed they are attached to some pretty strong ideological preconceptions about you know what is driving them, what are their functions, what are the intentions behind the institutional development of state bureaucracies of regulatory apparatuses, and then also market institutions. And that comes from ideological roots. The notion that the market is a, you know, kind of competitive economic force that's operating on the basis of private interests and to be opposed against a technocratic state that is there to regulate it on the basis of a public interest. What Deng Xiaoping was, in my interpretation, was really getting at with that quote was, as you say, not so much to be advocating a form of pragmatism, but to be saying that, well, indeed, those institutions as tools, as tools of policymaking, do not need to be layered over with, with such, you might say, ideological baggage. So thinking of the state and the market as, as economic tools, this provokes the question, and that begs the question, what is the ideological foundation of Chinese capitalism? You see that in the Chinese political economy, you know, the public versus private divide is, is very amorphous. These are blurred lines. You have it's a very messy reality in, in, in China. You know, the heads of banks, other corporations, are government officials, state actors are omnipresent throughout the economy as, as shareholders and other stakeholders. And what Deng Xiaoping was really getting at in that idea was that there must be another source of ideological cohesion. It's not that the state is in this antagonistic relationship with the market, which is how we generally tend to conceive it in the West, but it needs to be held together, bound together through other institutional forms. And as I was just saying before, you know, the more that I came to be researching this, the more it became apparent that it was actually the Chinese Communist Party itself. I describe it as kind of the ideological glue that holds these different institutional structures together. And without that, neither the state nor the market can fulfill their purposes as essentially policy tools. What is a better way of describing right now if the sort of substance of China's political economy or its economic system. You know, they use socialism with Chinese characteristics or the socialist market economy. Does that cohere to you as a description of what this economic system is? Or do we need to expand our horizons and be thinking of new ways of conceptualizing economic orders now, not only because of China's innovations in this space, but also in light of the evolving global context where it not only seems in China that some of these demarcations between public and private market and state don't quite map on to reality. So is this a provocation in many ways to rethink the entire structure of how we think about economic systems and more importantly, how we describe them either normatively or descriptively, or does something like a socialist market economy make sense to you? Great question. Uh, there, are, there are a few uh, a few elements there. I, I mean, you say, it's, is it a provocation? I absolutely would say that, yes, it's a provocation for trying to rethink some of our fundamental assumptions of Western political economy. I mean, there is a chapter in the book where I kind of detailed ways in which existing Western paradigm of political economy is marked by a distinct Eurocentrism. And that looks at the historical evolution of the Chinese market system all the way back to the Qing dynasty and this imperial era to, to look at the lineages of how 
the Chinese market system has always been there, but it was not necessarily destined to evolve along the same route as Western capitalism. The problem of Eurocentrism is definitely a real one, and I would indeed characterize the book as a provocation in that way. Okay, so if China is challenging our traditional demarcation between state and market, is China's status quo explanation for what this hybrid system looks like, socialism and Chinese characteristics of the socialist market economy, is that sufficient? Is that explain it to you? Or I guess what I was asking is, is China's evolution a provocation for us to fundamentally rethink more globally how we've traditionally described economic system? Is this a catalyst for a fundamental rethink just of our own, not only normative, but descriptive explanations for, you know, it seems to me with the way we're talking about the U.S. economy as being capitalist, which is the same word we used 75 years ago, even though so much is different, we've blurred a lot of the lines between state and private. Is there a new paradigm emerging that the Chinese system is in many ways provoking, not necessarily because that's their intention to, but just because in so, so many important ways, it's kind of stressing traditional demarcations, traditional definitions. And I think in many ways, China is leading where other countries will inevitably go, right? So we're now talking in the United States about how we need industrial policy. Who's leading that discussion? It's not organically happening. It's a result of where China is going. So I have this like emergent feeling that we're on the cusp of a fundamentally new way of thinking about how economic systems are ordered and described that moves away from 19th and 20th century normative vocabulary into an entirely new system. Maybe this is a bit too futuristic, but your work kind of gets me thinking about that and your answer did as well. By the way, I don't try to put you on the spot and maybe the question's ridiculous so we can punt on it. It just was coming out of how you were talking about state and market and came to my head. But absolutely, I agree. I mean, it is that provocation for a fundamental reassessment of 19th and 20th century ideas about what capitalism really is. So the first part of that question, does the socialist market economy and the socialism with Chinese characteristics, is that you know an adequate description for the particular form of Chinese capitalism? Then, well, just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, the answer is, I think, yes, because it has really structured Chinese economic developments and political developments for the last 30 years since it was first established as that guiding principle in 1993. So let's just unpack that a little bit, because what that is driving at that concept is not as it is commonly portrayed in Western and external you know, observations and commentary, it's, it's commonly seen as something of an oxymoronic, confused rhetoric, you know, kind of conceptual label for political purposes, so as to try and cover up the underlying confusion and ambiguity within, within Chinese you know, capitalism, within the Chinese political system. But it's actually far more than that. So the market system within that, the socialist market economy, is referring to, indeed, this combination of an economically productive market structure combined with a overarching structure and system of centralized political authority and control. So the evolution of this term, the socialism, is not so much to refer to you know, the, the, the notion of a planned economy or central control of a command economy as it was for much of the 20th century, but is definitively updated for the Chinese context, which is to say that the party is responsible for preserving and enhancing the livelihood of the people. And so this is modern day Chinese socialism. But at the core of that is this idea that the party itself must 
provide the and constitute the ideological and the institutional foundations for achieving that, as we were saying before about you know using the state regulatory apparatus and the market system, competitive markets as tools. So in what way does that provoke a, a reassessment? Well, indeed, we have, as you were saying, that there is this deep interpenetration within all capitalist economies of state power and market productivity and driving force. And it's impossible to separate these out if you, you know, through any sustained analysis of the capitalist system. However, this dichotomy that has, you know, been in place for so long prevents us from looking at the actual flows of power, the power structures that actually underlie these institutions. Following up on that, I wanted to ask you about another important point you make earlier on, again, sticking with this idea of moving outside of our, our traditional dichotomies or heuristics for understanding China. But the other is, it's clear that as China was modernizing its economic system in the wake of Mao Zedong's death, especially under Deng Xiaoping in this early 1990s period, there was a very specific teleological view of what the role they saw markets as playing. My colleague Andrew Polk has always described the leadership's view of markets as being they want markets to be effective, not necessarily efficient, right? Which in many ways defies our traditional understanding of what a market does and underlies a lot of our criticisms of Chinese state spending, where we'll say, well, that's just completely inefficient. And I've always thought, well, that misses the point in many ways. Beijing is looking to achieve outcomes. And if that means you give up some efficiency gain, as it's traditionally understood, but achieve some strategic objectives, then it's worth the trade-off. But I want to ask you about this dual mandate or this duality, I guess, of the capitalist system in China. You seem to be arguing the idea of an illiberal capitalist system. China has, in many ways, forever put to bed that idea that liberalism follows from capitalist growth or capitalist expansion. So I want if you could talk about what do you mean when you say that the duality here and what are the institutions that China has put in place or what are the policies China has put in place to be able to solidify this duality? Yeah, the duality of China's political economy achieving, seeking to achieve economic growth at the same time as preserving political resilience and control. Indeed, this then comes under the label of authoritarian capitalism. And yeah, as you rightly point out, China, especially in recent years, although I would argue that this has been relatively evident for a much longer time than has been broadly acknowledged. This form of illiberal capitalism, authoritarian capitalism, then demands that both the institutions of economic growth, the market institutions, market actors, as well as those mechanisms of political control be brought together through various different institutions that are controlled and deployed by the Communist Party. So I would group those institutions and try to think about those institutions in three different ways and as representing three forms of, of control. So firstly, control over people, control over capital, and control over ideology. And underlying all of these different mechanisms and institutions is the fact that the party and its authority remains the, the core fulcrum, is perhaps an apt way of, of describing it, upon which the different priorities of economic growth and political control are balanced. So as you mentioned, efficiency can sometimes be deliberately deprioritized for effectiveness. And effectiveness then represents this, this attempt to balance these competing policy priorities. So three forms of control over people, over capital, over ideology. And when I speak of control, it's this is not 
necessarily in a kind of directly Leninist, totalitarian, very you know, kind of commanding kind of way, but it's, it's actually far more nuanced. So the concept that I use in the book to understand how these forms of control have been achieved is that of socioeconomic uncertainty. To be more precise, there are two faces to this notion of uncertainty. Firstly, uncertainty as a problem, an economic problem to be solved in order to allow, enable economic and financial activity to, to take place. Of course, in terms of financial investments, you know, risk and the uncertainty, the risk that arises from uncertainty is, is a major factor in determining, you know, the extent and the direction of capital investment. So this is kind of a problem of governance. You know, you need to reduce and constrain uncertainty in order to facilitate productive economic and financial activity. The other side of uncertainty is, is that it's an opportunity and an opportunity for political power uh, to be exercised. So these two faces are recurring features of the mechanisms that the party uses to control people, to control capital and to control ideology. And it's important to keep that in mind when we're talking about the institutional forms that the party has developed. Uh, one long-standing mechanism has been, of course, the nomenclatura system, the system of personnel management within a variety across different levels of the Chinese economy. And this is a multi, multi-faceted, multi-layered system, uh, very complex, administered by the organization, a department that has been in place, of course, since the Maoist era when China was a command economy, but it's been updated so as to infuse this political and ideological integrity into different institutions and aspects of and layers of the economy, of market enterprises, as well as state bureaucratic institutions. So you have that situation. This is, you know, in a way to understand and explain you know, why the heads of state-owned banks are not just uh, important market actors, but are also um, deeply embedded in the political system itself. Furthermore, of course, there are very prevalent party committees within enterprises and organizations, of course, both within the regulatory side of state structure, as well as within all range of enterprises, state-owned as well as private. And the politicization of key regulatory institutions since the early 1990s especially. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this in a bit more detail. This is looking towards Zhu Rongzi's efforts to, to, to kind of modernize the state bureaucracy. The central bank, PBOC, is perhaps the most important example of this in the financial sector, where it's you have this deep centralization of power, but it is clearly not an independent institution. So these are the institutions and the ways in which the party has sought to control, firstly, the allocation of capital, the people who are responsible for making those kinds of decisions, and to exercise overarching control over what is the actual ideological content of those decisions and of those institutions. So this is deeply embedded in almost all facets of governance within China's financial system. So let's turn to that. You mentioned the early 1990s. I wanted to ask you about three specific moments in time and how these were catalysts or at least provocations for, for innovations and reforms and restructurings in China's political economy. Of course, building on legacies that date to, you know, well back into how the party is both organized, how it views the world, how it leveraged its role as a Dong, as a studying party. It's always been flexible and pragmatic, but I want to look at three events and ask you in turn what role these played. First is the 
Tiananmen Square crackdown, June 4th, 1989. Second is the Asian financial crisis of 1997. And then the third is the global financial crisis of 2007-89. So taking those in turn, if we're going back to this period right after June 4th, 1989, in the normal historical telling of this, we've got this conservative retrenchment immediately after June 4th. 1992, in the spring, Deng Xiaoping goes on his southern tour. And this, in the normal phrase, this quote, kickstarts or restarts the reform process. And then it's upward and onward, straight through the WTO, the forces of openness and reform win. Zhu Rongji comes in and restructures the state-owned enterprises to unleash productivity. You tell a slightly different story there and a much more nuanced story and one that certainly ties into our story here of China's state capitalist system. What happened in the early and mid-1990s, you know, leading up to the Asian financial crisis, that to you is the real story here of how China's capitalist system was evolving. So indeed, Deng Xiaoping's southern tour was was the prime catalyst for a reinvigorated reform process following 1989. So 1989 indeed was a huge political shock for Beijing and the party, and it did provoke a very intense period of reflection, of reassessment, and of I mean, deep ideological contestation within the party as to where China's reform process was going. And this unfolded over, over two years. The conservative retrenchment, as it is commonly portrayed, well, this never succeeded of course, but it did manage to, or it did instill a very important consideration and acknowledgement of the importance of centralized political leadership and ideological integrity for China's future reform progress to continue in a positive direction. So to retell, you know, kind of the story of Deng's uh, southern tour a little bit, it's absolutely right that this did open China up and, and kickstart the reform and development process again. But it's not to say that Deng was stressing liberalization. And it's very important then to understand the ways in which what was unfolding after the Southern Tour was very different to the reform process that led up to June 4 in 1989. Because Deng in the Southern Tour was not advocating liberalization as had been very much in the wind during the 1980s. He was stressing the need for development and it was economic development as the necessary course for Chinese um, reform. But he was very consistent and, and strong in emphasizing that party leadership was the only way that this redoubled focus on economic growth and development was going to be achieved without sowing the seeds for further instability and, and ultimately you know, broader economic and political breakdown in the future. And of course, this then led to 1993 and the establishment then of the socialist market economy. And that was the outcome, as I was you know, just discussing before, this admixture of ideologically robust political leadership at the heart of both effective regulation of an increasingly marketized and complex economic structure, at the same time as being able to maintain the driving force, the productive driving force of, of economic competition at the heart of that market system. But, but combining these two under the auspices of that strong centralized political leadership was really the key message of, of Deng's Southern Tour. Unfortunately, this was, in, in a sense, mischaracterized by a lot of observers at the time and ever since. Which brings us then to Zhu Rongdi. Zhu Rongdi is really the, the principal architect of this process of institutional reform that was then catalyzed after 1991, the, the Southern Tour, and then especially after 93, the 1993 Third 
planning. So again, contrary to, to kind of Western understandings or popular understandings, maybe we should say, of, of Zhu Rongji as this kind of consummate liberal reformer favoring marketization, he actually strongly believed in the necessity of this robust political leadership. And, and he worked assiduously to, and very uncompromisingly, to create and refine the institutions, as I was just mentioning, this was the, you know, the creation of, of the passing of the central bank law that put in place this system of financial regulation and the non-independent People's Bank of China. But the institutions to be able to combine this robust political leadership with a market oriented system to or a market system directed towards economic efficiency as well as macroeconomic stability. So Zhu Rongji was uncompromising in that. He was again very much in that mold of being ideologically agnostic. He was not involved in these intra-party negotiations involving Chen Yun and uh, Li Peng and uh, Deng Xiaoping immediately after Tiananmen, but he was the reformer who, who kind of took that mantle of Deng Xiaoping's southern tour and its message and sought to reinvigorate the fundamental institutions of the Chinese financial sector in order to in order to actually realize that. Now moving ahead, I think for most external observers of China, the next big inflection point would have been accession to the WTO in late 2001. But you, in your own understanding of the evolution of this state capitalist or this Chinese capitalist system, you see a more important inflection point or at least you put emphasis on a different inflection point, which is the 1997 Asian financial crisis. Why is that important to your story of the evolution of this capitalist or this Chinese capitalist system? The Asian financial crisis very much revealed to the Chinese leadership the risks of external liberalization within an increasingly globalized world. And so coming relatively soon after this process that was of the 1990s, there were a series of events that really underscored this risk and the need for a uniquely Chinese response um, to this. So one of the key lessons from the Asian financial crisis was this idea of using Western institutions, Western tools, but imbuing them, infusing them with a distinctly Chinese essence. So China watches might be familiar with that notion of and again, Zhu Rongji was still one of the principal policymakers, architects of this response. And China remained unscathed from the Asian financial crisis because there was a very li limited external liberalization in terms of its capital account, in terms of its financial system. The sole exception, really, well, the sole significant exception was the case of uh, the Guangdong International Trust and Investment Company. And this was very much a scandal, the Megitic scandal, as it's known. And what emerged out of that episode in which external liabilities had been amassed cross-border into Hong Kong, and it was kind of a micro example of the broader dynamics that had been at play for Thailand, for Indonesia, um, in the Asian financial crisis. But Zhu Rongji was, again, the firefighter for this episode. And what resulted from that was this model of external liberalization that we still see very much at play now in terms of China's management of its capital account. It's very much a centrally controlled system of specific pipelines and channels for capital inflows and outflows that are quite specifically and explicitly directed towards achieving particular policy objectives. And following the Asian financial crisis, this is when that kind of guiding line on external liberalization began to take shape. And it's very much been 
the guiding principle since then. So can I ask you, moving on from that, if the Asian financial crisis exposed to the Chinese leadership, or at least fully confirmed to them some of the risks of engaging or integrating with international capital markets, what was the impact of the global financial crisis? Because that's often seen as really the final nail in the coffin of a belief that Western capitalist systems had any right to claim superiority. How do you interpret the lessons Beijing learned, and I, I think importantly, what were the outcomes of those discussions or those concerns raised by the global financial crisis? The financial crisis definitely underscored for the Chinese leadership at an ideological level, both the necessity and the correctness of China's socialist market economy. Immediately after the financial crisis, this was very much the prevailing view within Beijing. The key lesson learned in the financial crisis for the Chinese leadership was that China's socialist market economy, as it had been developing, as it had been constructed up until that point, was both necessary and the correct approach. And the financial crisis and what happened over the next years did not in any way fundamentally shake up this prevailing consensus about the correct, the appropriate course for, for Chinese reform and development. But the structural conditions began to change. So the investment-led growth model that had really reached its zenith in the mid-late uh, 2000s, immediately before the financial crisis, was running into significant structural limitations. And these had been somewhat apparent even before the financial crisis, but it was relatively too easy for a variety of reasons. I'm also linked, of course, to the intertwined, interdependent relationship between the United States and that unsustainable economic model and China's model of growth during the 2000s. It was running into significant structural limitations. So what happened was that the rapid emergence of the shadow banking system following China's implementation of a very robust, of course, uh, stimulus package, this demonstrated the need to begin to redirect the power of capital towards a new strategy for economic growth. Nevertheless, this had to be achieved, of course, without compromising political resilience and, and stability. So the shadow banking crisis arose as a result of that stimulus package. And this started to precipitate just around the time when Xi Jinping came to power, the need for new drivers of economic growth. And we start to see then that this was, of course, this is a familiar story on moving towards more domestic drivers of growth, a more consumption-driven economy, you know, the rebalancing of China's economic structure. but at the same time, this, of course, started to raise the specter of, well, if we have a more consumer-driven, um, services-driven economy, which is less reliant upon state-owned enterprises and the traditional existing national champions of China's heavily industrialized economic structure, then what would be the implications for, for political resilience and overall political stability? You know, the question was, would this start to create problems and perhaps lead to the you know the unraveling of this institutional balance that had been forged you know quite painstakingly over the previous 15 to 20 years so this brings us i guess into the xi jinping era and what we see now is that there is this redoubled focus on ideological integrity in all sectors of the economy and within the party of course evidence you know anti-corruption so, so on and so forth but it's a little bit more than that it's more than just seeking to stamp out the bad elements within the party it's about re establishing trust and trust not just in the political leanings and the governance, you know, moral integrity of officials, but also trust in the party as that ideological bedrock upon which all other 
economic activity can really take place. And this takes us all the way back to central kind of conceptual themes uh, running through the analysis of the book, which is that this careful balancing of uncertainty as a factor in economic growth, but also as a way of maintaining political control. So this is very much an intensification of the existing model. The dynamics of that model admits an increasingly complex and multifaceted economy. I think that's a great place to pose one final question to you, which is, as we're looking at this fundamental shift that you've traced historically from, again, our traditional conceptions of market-led orders and capitalist systems to this increasingly state led state directed communist party integrated capitalist system there's key questions about sustainability of this system about how superior is this system entering into this new environment and so i wanted to ask if you could at least just dust off your crystal ball or, or in my case piece it back together after having been shattered looking out now we're stress testing this chinese capitalist system now with shocks like covid19 increasing pressure from the united states on the trade and technology front rising concerns domestically in China about things like middle income traps. There's a persisting concern about total factor productivity, about debt drag. There's a mounting series of challenges. We've been discussing, I think, or at least implying many of the advantages or at least core features of the system which have allowed it to expand over the past four decades. Any thoughts from you on where this system is going? What will be the drivers of change moving forward? And I guess the big perennial question, which is, is this system well positioned to survive and thrive over the longer term? Or can you foresee the evolving geopolitical environment bringing new pressures to bear that it hasn't had to survive thus far? Set of big questions. Uh, thanks for that, Jude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a huge amount to say on this, even though it's all wildly speculative. But I guess I should start with one small clarification, I guess, of everything that we've been talking about up until now, which is that just because this unique structure of Chinese capitalism has enabled these two goals, you know, economic growth, political resilience, to remain in a stable kind of relationship for this period of time. It does not mean if in, in any way this is not a normative judgment. This is not to say that the overall system is necessarily sustainable at all, but it is to say that the points at which China's capitalist system, um, authoritarian capitalist system, is going to undergo serious challenges and stresses, I would argue is more directly related to some of the unsustainable dynamics of capitalism itself, rather than perhaps peculiarities or distinct features of the Chinese system. So at no point would we say that Chinese capitalism is more sustainable than any other capitalist system. And of course, the structural limitations that were you know, in evidence immediately after the financial crisis are just you know, one aspect of structural limitations, which we see all around the world, declining total factor productivity, problems of you know, serious accumulation of unsustainable debt. These are not unique to China. China. What I would say is that China's system is likely to be able to stave off the most severe potentials for crisis than a number of other systems. And this is, I guess, maybe to end on a slightly provocative note, um, which is to say that Chinese capitalism is quite an honest form of capitalism. 
And what I mean by that is we are increasingly coming to see that liberal democracy and financial capitalism are not good bedfellows. They do not play well and that we have in Western discourse have been for a very long time and continue to labor under something of a delusion that's free liberal democratic capitalism is the optimal way of achieving you know, capitalist society. Chinese authoritarian capitalism is going to be and is increasingly well positioned to, again, use all available political and economic tools to try and hold together this system. Now, it's going to be messy. It's going to be conflict-ridden. There are serious dynamics within any capitalist economy which provoke crisis and which are fundamentally unsustainable. I mean, looking at the long run, looking at environmental limits, ecological limits, energy consumption, resource limitations, etc., etc. That's further on down the road. And so what this means is that currently Xi Jinping is seeking to create and construct a series of mechanisms of retaining control over capital, over people, over ideology, which enable a much more fine-grained tweaking and tuning and re-engineering of institutions, both within the market and within the state. At the heart of this is, frankly, digital surveillance. And this is something that my research is currently looking into more and more, which is that the evolving mechanisms of control for the Communist Party revolve around trying to use digital tools, the social credit system, market regulation, big data analysis, the development of the national blockchain network in order to be able to achieve and reap the benefits of competitive markets at the same time as being able to exercise political oversight and retain political authority over those market dynamics. So we see this emerging increasingly at the heart of China's new trajectory of economic development. Thanks, Julian. Those are really great summary thoughts. And I'm also glad that you highlighted some important areas for future study, which is, I think traditionally, we think of China's political system as a late era Soviet rigid party system. And we still haven't broken out of our conceptual box of understanding that even within a Leninist one party state, especially the CCP puts an extraordinary amount of effort in precisely staving off elements of organizational atrophy, precisely to avoid a fate of a communist party of the Soviet Union. And so there are some really interesting spaces to be looking at governance innovation, governance reform, how China is trying to adapt and evolve to some of these new realities and exigencies from from technological innovation, globalization, or now deglobalization. And although I think there's a good debate to be had about precisely how fit the Communist Party is to adapt and thrive in the face of these challenges, I appreciate a lot of the work that you're doing to provide a much more granular, nuanced level of understanding on these big, important drivers. So that's a long way of saying I want to thank you for a really fascinating discussion. I want to again recommend that anyone who's interested in where China's economic system is going, what the fundamental drivers are. But more importantly, I think understanding in a much more nuanced and helpful way the role of the Communist Party as being embedded in, not separate from or overseeing the economic and financial system. Recommend everyone go to your favorite bookstore and buy Communist Constructing Capitalism, State, Market, and the Party in China's Financial Reform. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.